Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Revelation chapter 2, verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said. This is our 17th and last sermon in the Foundations series. As we approach our 20th anniversary as a particularized church, and as God has heard our prayers and blessed us with various kinds of growth, it seems appropriate and necessary for us to remind ourselves of those foundational things that have, established, that have enabled us to get to this place. We have certainly been blessed beyond my imagination. However, one of the dangers of any kind of success is that we can become forgetful or ungrateful or arrogant or apathetic. It's possible to grow dull and complacent or overconfident. A certain mission drift can set in. It's hard to find faithful churches that have been able to persevere for more than two or three generations. The Apostle Paul admonishes the church at Galatia, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we faint not. We've had a good beginning, and now we want to focus on the next few years that are ahead of us. Of course, this will require honest reflection and evaluation, Returning to the foundation to look for cracks and possible problems. Satan always attempts to undermine little by little. Again, Paul writes this time to the Corinthian church, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so, as we wrap up this series, it's appropriate for us to heed the warnings that Jesus gave to other churches so that we might be aware of the pitfalls that could take us down. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks through the Apostle John to the angels, that is, to the messengers or to the pastors of the established these established churches. Most of these churches were probably somewhere between 20 and 25 years old. One of these churches we know pretty well, and that's the church at Ephesus because of the epistle to the Ephesians. This was a strong church that was, at least for a while, pastored by Timothy. As Jesus speaks to these churches, he both commends them where he can, but he also warns them where he must. As Jesus speaks to these churches then, his warnings are serious, and if they don't take heed to his warnings, they are at risk of losing their status as legitimate Christian churches. Now, they may or may not disappear. They may or may not lock their doors and stop coming. But Jesus threatens, if you will, that there is the possibility that they can have their lampstands removed. That they'll be dark. That they might still meet. But they won't be what he considers 
a legitimate church. History is filled, and our country is filled, with many churches who have failed to heed his warnings. This morning we're going to simply read what Jesus had to say to each of these seven churches, and I'll make a few comments and some applications to us. And so there's no way that I can do a full exposition of these texts. That would take weeks. But rather, this is intended as a pastoral exhortation that will focus on a few particulars that are mentioned in these texts. So if you want to follow along, I'll be reading from Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Notice that each of these churches has, has different, have different strengths and weaknesses. And there's more than one way that a church can fall into a ditch. And note also that the promises and the warnings to the seven churches are for all the churches. So he didn't just write to them individually, but they're all receiving this letter. So they're all privy to the promises and warnings to each church. Now, you're going to see he mentions the seven stars. Uh, They're in the hand of Jesus. Those are the seven angels. Uh, and we'll say just a moment what that is. The seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches that he's writing to, and the seven churches represent all churches. Angels, by the way, it's just a word for messenger. These are the pastors who are the appointed and ordained messengers from Jesus to the churches. Jesus addresses the pastors as he speaks to each church, but again, all the churches, including us, are invited to take these promises and warnings uh, to heart. Now, it's interesting, all seven of these churches, just a little note here, including Patmos, which is where John is writing from, an island, could fit inside a circle within the radius of 86 miles. So it's very local here uh, where he's writing. So let's begin, and we'll just take a section at a time, each church, and we'll read the text as we go. So... We want to see, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have uh, preserved and... I see they persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I, which also, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give, uh, give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so this first church is the loveless church. At one point, the church at Ephesus was one of the preeminent churches. We would have considered it very successful. Ephesus is located near the western shore of modern-day Turkey, to give you some sense of where it is on the map. If you were to go to Ephesus today, you'll find the remnants of many ancient and spectacular buildings dating all the way back to the first century. But what you won't find in, in Ephesus is an active church. If there are any Christians there now, they're probably hiding. 
But this is exactly what Jesus warned would happen if they did not repent. Now, this church seems to have been very sound in its doctrine, and they were diligent, the text tells us, to guard that truth and to expose any who might deviate from the truth. So, one of the things we're going to see is it's possible for a church to believe true things, to have correct doctrine, but to still miss the mark in other areas. And so true doctrine is essential to a healthy church, but like many things that are necessary, true doctrine is not sufficient all by itself. There are other necessary things as well. In fact, the heart of the gospel is about love, love for God and love for neighbors. And love is about self-sacrifice and service, a selflessness toward others. Anyone can be a doctrinal critic, but without love, it is less than tinkling brass. Moreover, the love, the kind of love Jesus is speaking about involves, he says, repenting and doing the first works. Their works were sound. The things they were doing in many cases were just fine. But something was missing that threatened to undo them. The kind of love that Jesus had taught his disciples to have for one another so that when the world looked at them, they would see and see him, see his love, and know that they were followers of Jesus. Something that set them apart, distinguished them from the run of the mill. Of course, it's easy for any of us to grow weary in well-doing in the service of others. It's easy for us to let others do things in the church. We can slip in late and leave early and we'll just let everybody else do those things. Uh, And so what's important, though, is we recognize that at the heart of this, what is our first love? Mary says, that's what you've lost, is your first love. That is love for Jesus himself. See, loving you is hard, uh, and loving me is hard, but when we love Christ, he's not hard to love. When our focus is where it belongs. And then Jesus calls on us to love each other. We're the body of Christ. This is how we love Christ, is by loving each other. By sacrificing for each other. But this is a slippery slope to lovelessness. And losing our first love is deadly for us and for our church if we lose sight of him. And so they had grown slack in their first love. And as a result, they were in danger of having their lampstand removed. In which case the Ephesian church would become extinct. Our love is both secret and seen. And so may I ask you, would anyone describe you as in love with Jesus? Would that be something they'd notice right away? The guy's in love with Jesus. He can't stop talking about him. It just shows. Oh, and by the way, he's in love with the church too. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ. He's in love. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. 
Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So this is the persecuted church. We have the loveless church, now the persecuted church. Jesus identifies himself here in two ways. He says first that uh, first he is the first and the last, the protos and the eschatos, the beginning and the end, which encompasses all of human history. That's his that's his claim. That he starts history and he will end history and right there in the middle of history He's killed and he rises again from the dead. We have the resurrection. It's critical for each of us to truly grasp this truth because this is what's life-changing. Smyrna provides a sharp contrast later we'll see with Laodicea. Laodicea, we're going to see, has the reputation for being rich, but Jesus tells them, "You're, you're actually poor. Smyrna is the opposite. The Lord knows their poverty, but he tells them you're actually rich. So one of the best, one of the best of these seven churches is a poor church, which is not the way we tend to measure success. Among these seven, two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, there are no faults that Jesus mentions. Among, and so this should encourage us and let us know that it is possible for us to remain faithful over the years. One of the things we learn from the church in Smyrna, though our circumstances aren't nearly as severe as theirs, is that faithful churches are sometimes slandered and persecuted, even by those that we might think would naturally be sympathetic to us. Many in the Jewish synagogue in Smyrna were accusing the Christians, who were mostly Jewish, And saying that they were not really Jews and turning them into Roman authorities. Jesus encourages them to remain faithful and to not be afraid during this time of their testing. Perseverance to the end and faithfulness to God regardless of the circumstances is the mark of a true church. Jesus said that the test could last ten days, which probably in prophetic language means ten years. Jesus reminds them that even if some of them die for their faith, what's the worst thing that can happen to you in Christ? You die. And then what happens? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So it's not that the suffering isn't going to be great or that some are not going to die, but he says, even for those who die, nevertheless, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Jesus went through the first death He was dead and he came back to life, and so will you, he says. So, press on. No matter how hard it gets, you can't lose. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos, write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. 
Thus you have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to ear, hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And so there are pressures from all directions in our culture, just as there was in, in theirs at Pergamos, to compromise the gospel. There's a growing list of things that we are told we can't say or do. The siren calls of our culture, sexual chaos, sings to us day and night. Pergamos is described as a place where Satan's throne is. It was the seat of the Roman governor for those in the region. And Satan is behind all the false gods. And we too live in a polytheistic culture with an increasingly intrusive government. What will we do when they say we can't and God says we must? Will we compromise like the church at Pergamos? Is there a clear line of demarcation between the church and the world? Or will we adopt their thoughts and ways? Will we go along to get along? Antipas was a faithful martyr for Jesus, and he did not go with the cultural flow. He had been in this church, and so how about you? Are you like him? Jesus was clear when he said in Matthew 8, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in glory. The glory of his Father with his holy angels. Are you embarrassed to be in a strict Christian home or to be in a Christian school or to dress in a modest manner? Do you long to be accepted by the world, to fit in? Then go for it. In James we read, Adulterers and adulteresses, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Compromise will kill you, and compromise, when it comes to the truth, will kill a church. Sexual immorality was and is a common place where Satan gets a foothold in a church. This is the the reference to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, idols and to commit sexual immorality. Balaam was hired to curse the Israelites as a prophet. He was a non-Israelite prophet, which he refused to do. But there are hints that he took Balak aside to give him some kind of off-the-record advice and counsel on how to use their women as a weapon against Israel. You think there aren't people out there thinking that way in our culture? Balaam taught Balak what to do. And it was a way of luring the Israelites into idolatry by means of fornication. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, we're not certain what that is, but it seems to have been of a similar nature. One of the enormous battles in churches today is over the acceptability of aberrant sexual behavior. N.T. Wright comments on this. He says that 
the same tactic still works remarkably well today. Sexual morality isn't, as it is so often portrayed, a matter of a few ancient rules clung to by some rather conservative persons when the rest of society has moved on. It is rather a matter of the call of the Creator to faithful uh, man plus woman marriage, reflecting the complementary of, of heaven and earth themselves. That is the theme which finally emerges in the great scene at the end of this present book, the book of Revelation. Married love is a signpost to the faithfulness of the Creator to His creation. The reason sexual immorality is so often coupled with idolatry as here is because such behavior points to a different God. The gods of blood and soil, of race and power. It is a toxic mixture. And the Christian has no business getting involved with it, as Paul himself warned in 1 Corinthians 10. When a church loses its ability to say no to the surrounding culture, then it is on its way down and out. No more lampstand. Jesus says, repent or else I'll come to you quickly, and I, Jesus himself, will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. The word of Christ is a double-edged sword coming from his mouth. And in this case, it's a weapon that is deployed against a Christian church that has fallen into compromise and tolerance with sexual immorality. Jesus promises to him who overcomes, I will give some hidden manna to eat. This hidden manna, the Bible tells us, is Christ himself. John 6, this is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, the description of Jesus here is not one of Jesus meek and mild. At first glance, he seen, it's, this seems like a maturing Christian church. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. 
And as for your works, the last are more than the first. That's a pretty good compliment. However, there was a false teacher in this church who promoted herself as a prophetess, and Jesus here gives her the pseudonym of Jezebel, after the Phoenician queen who introduced Baal worship into Israel at the time of Elijah. The charge against the church at Thyatira was simply this. You tolerate her. You put up with that. Sexual immorality was part of this seduction and flirtation with idolatry, and this threatens every church, including this one. Many of you have a little Jezebel in your pocket or purse right now. A little smartphone that ain't so smart sometimes. It's maybe it also ought to be called a sinful phone. A portal into trouble with each other, with flirtation, with sexting. I'm just using this as one example. I'm not just picking on this latest technology. This is just a new way of doing an old thing. This is a new way of doing what they were doing in Thyatira. This is a new device that Jezebel invented. And there's lots of them. There's, there's a whole long list of them. So use your imagination. Jesus says to the church and to each of us that we have no business ever compromising with pagan teaching and practices. In fact, his warning is rather alarming, and I can say that I have seen churches where these kinds of things have happened. Jesus says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Wasn't like we don't have a warning. Wasn't like God hasn't told us what his standards are over and over and over. We can't claim ignorance. Indeed, he says, I'll cast her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. The next generation. Unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. He always sees us. And he always sees you. Verse 27 is a quote from Psalm 2. He shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall dash, and shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. He's talking about people who resist God's word. Kings and rulers, but others who resist God's word. God says, here's what my son's going to do. I'm going to give him a big iron rod and let him run through the pottery field. And take care of those pots. Entire families, churches, and nations are ruled by King Jesus. And one thing you can mark, he will suffer no rivals. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things he says, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. 
and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's possible for there to be faithful individuals in a church that is generally unfaithful. Sometimes you'll hear people say something like, you know, a church, a denomination or a church that's just gone down the tubes, but here they are still showing up week after week. And I've heard this said many times, this is my church. They left me. I didn't leave it. Sardis is a church that on the outside appeared to be alive. They probably had some numbers and perhaps a lot of activities, but on the inside, Jesus says, you're dead. And this reminded me of what Jesus said, remember, to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of lawlessness and hypocrisy. This is a case of men being impressed by something that God is not impressed with at all. As God told Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Remember when he saw Eliab, um, Jesse's oldest son? Do not look at his appearance or at his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For the Lord looks, for, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus put it even more bluntly. In Luke 16, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is, it, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let me give an example. A lot of you have been raised in families. I was, and most of you have been, to show respect. To say, yes, sir. No, ma'am. Thank you. And then do you turn away and then mock those very authorities that you just allegedly showed respect to? You say, that's a, that's a hypocrite. That's a lie. That's not. Which one's the real you? The one that's there for show so that you can, so, so everybody will think that you're a fine young man or a fine young lady? Or is the real you the one that comes out of you when those people aren't around? When you think God's not watching? You see, we can have beautiful things, beautiful buildings and music and lots of activities, but in the end, at the end of the day, Jesus is looking for something substantial in us. I have a burr oak tree in my front yard that I planted the year we moved into the house, so about 14 or 15 years ago. It was just a bit of a twig. It weathered the Hurricane Rita. Gary and I sat out on my front porch during that hurricane and watched that tree almost parallel to the ground from those 100-mile-hour winds. Made it through that, pressed on. But right now, so right now it's about 10 inches in diameter, about 25 feet tall. But if you compared it to another bur oak tree in my front yard, right now you couldn't tell the difference. It's wintertime. But last spring, this one, the first one I was talking about, only put out a few green leaves on the very ends of the branches, and I knew something was wrong. 
By the end of the summer, it was clear that that tree had died. Now its bark is shedding and it's time to cut it down and turn it into firewood. The church at Sardis had incomplete works, a few green leaves, which is to say that this Christian community left a lot to be desired. But if Jesus is truly Lord, then we can't just mumble through with minimal performance Christianity. You'll probably remember when you first joined the church. Remember that? You were excited. Nobody here has been forced to join. You sit up here with a smile and you had the picture taken and you said, I do. And you meant it. You were all in. But little by little, it's easy for our commitment to wane. Drift sets in. And Jesus is warning you to wake up, to renew your commitment, and to get after it. Or else Jesus will come, he says, like a thief. And you won't know what's happening until it's too late. He said, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. We should never presume that belonging to the church community, irrespective of our behavior, is all that's required. To those who wake up, who stay unpolluted, who conquer, Jesus reiterates another promise. I will not blot out your name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He will acknowledge you before his Father. Two more. Revelation 3, 7-13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. Have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie... Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you because you have kept my commandment to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the Lord, this is one of the faithful churches. The Lord mentions four things that relate to this faithfulness. First, he knows their works. Second, their works are done despite the fact that they have little strength. And third, they have kept the Lord's word. And fourth, they have not denied his name. Perseverance is a key characteristic of a faithful church. God promises safety in the midst of tribulation. He said, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world. Philadelphia was no stranger, for example, to earthquakes. And they had suffered a major one just about 50 years before this book was written. Much of the city had been destroyed and had to be rebuilt. Only the strongest of buildings survived. So imagine the comfort when Jesus says to this church, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. If we are to witness, 
excuse me, if we are to withstand the cultural earthquakes of our time, then we too are going to have to be a strong pillar of resistance and stability. Jesus says he is the key of David, and he set before them an open door that no one can shut. Even those who had little strength, but who kept his word, have not denied his name, have opportunities to advance the gospel in their city. There were many who professed to be Jews, but because they opposed the Messiah, he says they're not truly Jews. They had become instead a synagogue of Satan. So let me apply that very quickly. I'm rushing through this, but I want to get through all of these here. Nominal Christians, average Christians, complacent Christians are not partial Christians. According to this text, they're actually on the devil's side. Nominal Christians are not halfway to heaven, but well on their way to hell. They are Christians in some sense. They're baptized, they join the church, they're on the roll. But not in any sense that's a blessing. The political forces, those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not but lie, were arrayed against them. But God would bless their faithfulness in the face of this kind of opposition. The balance of power on the face of it was against the church. But Jesus plus one still wins. In the end, the roles will be reversed, he says. The progress of the faithful church is never by might or by power, but by God's Spirit. Jesus says, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Finally, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen and the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see as many as I love I rebuke and chasten therefore be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the most famous of the seven churches and perhaps has the most application to our own circumstances. Laodicea was a prosperous crossroads of a trading town, and it was the center of banking for the whole region. This was a booming place with a host of industry. The one thing the city did not have, though, was good water. Here's a description. The river Lycus at that that point is not strong, and sometimes it dries up altogether in the summer. There are, however, two other sources of water, one to the north and the other to the southeast. The north, standing high on a dramatic cliff, is the city of Heropolis. It boasts to this day a set of hot springs, to which tourists come from all over the world, the hot 
chemically charged water comes bubbling out of the ground, channeled today into the bathing pools of various hotels, and spills over the cliff, leaving a white mineral deposit visible for miles around. In the first century, they built aqueducts to bring this water across to Laodicea in the center of the valley, four or five miles away. They can still be seen today with their insides covered in hardened mineral deposits. But by the time the water arrived in Laodicea, it was no longer hot. It was merely lukewarm. What was worse, the concentrated chemicals made it unsuitable to drink unless for medicinal reasons you wanted to make yourself physically sick. To the southeast of Laodicea was the town of Colossae, and it too had a had suffered badly in the earthquake of A.D. 61, but had not been rebuilt. Colossae, however, had a splendid supply of water flowing down from high snow-capped Mount Cadmus, fast-flowing, chilly streams of almost alpine quality. But by the time the water reached Laodicea, 11 miles away, the normal Turkish heat meant it too had become lukewarm. This is, it's this remarkable feature of Laodicea, hot water that cooled down and cold water that had heated up, which forms the most famous part of this most famous of the seven letters. Indeed, the word Laodicean has become proverbial for lukewarmness with the meaning of apathetic, neither one thing nor the other. So Jesus addresses the church with a mixture of sorrow and it seems real anger. So Jesus says to them, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. And the word vomit here is not too strong a word. Makes him sick. Jesus is disgusted at the taste of Laodicean Christianity. The letter continues in full contrast as the Laodiceans say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And do not know, he says, that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Apparently the smug, well-off attitude of the town as a whole had rubbed off on the Christians, but Jesus says you're just the opposite. Their wealth had made them self-sufficient, and self-sufficiency is what lukewarmness is in religion. The end result is their self-sufficiency of their self-sufficiency with the, well, as the text says they had need of nothing which meant they really didn't need the Lord. This is a perpetual temptation that comes with wealth. We're all relatively rich. You say not me, yes you. I don't know anybody who lives in this city that isn't relatively rich compared to the way most people live in the world and have lived through history. Scripture constantly warns of this. The Israelites were warned as they came out of the wilderness where God gave them water from the rock and bread from the sky that they would be tempted to this self-sufficiency. Deuteronomy 8.17 Then you say in your heart, My power and my might and my hand have gained me this wealth. And the Apostle Paul warns, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. There is only one thing worse than being wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
And that's going to be all five of those at once. It's an interesting note to see the context of verse 18. The Laodiceans were known for their wealth, their gold. They were the banking center. Their black wool garments. They had a special breed of sheep that produced this really dark black wool. So it was a real big deal to be able to get one of those black garments. And their ophthalmology schools and the Phrygian eye powder and eye salve. They were well known for. People traveled there to get that. This is the backdrop to the words of Jesus to them. Listen, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Banking. And white garments that you may be clothed. Textiles. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. These are the words of Jesus who is described as the Amen, the so be it, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation. How could you possibly, how could we possibly be lukewarm about him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us promises. Thank you that you give us warnings. Give us now ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last two verses in chapter 3 say, Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this invitation is most often presented as though Jesus is knocking at the door of someone's heart, But this text never mentions a heart. The door he's knocking at is the door of the church. He's not only knocking, he's calling. Because it says, if you hear my voice. Therefore, if any who are in the church will hear his voice and hear him knocking and come and open the door, he promises to come into him and dine with him and he with me in the table fellowship. Now, this is not a salvation text, then. It's a Reformation text. And the Lord's table is a Reformation table. It's a place where we come not to be saved. We're already that. We're already baptized. If you're baptized, you ought to be at the table. You say, but I'm not doing so good. Well, then it's because you need to eat. You need some strength. You need Jesus. You can't fix yourself. You're broken. And you, you can't do anything about it except wallow in it. But you can come and he can fix you. He's God. He died for you. He, got, he took away your sins, which is all your problem. Every problem you got is sin. It's where you've forgotten God and disobeyed God and not thought of him when you should or not bowed before him and worshipped him. And that's where all the problems come. He took care of those because he loves you. 
said, I don't, I don't want to do what he wants to do. Well, then keep on doing what you're doing a little longer and see how that works out. It's not working out so good right now, is it? So why not come to him and bow the knee and say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Thank you. Jesus ends each address to the seven churches with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me ask you, do you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying? Then take care to listen. O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. We also pray that your grace will now be evident in us, so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking and increase our faith. And now we gladly go outside the camp to be with Christ, to bear his reproach, knowing that we will also bear his glory. You have given grace to the humble, and you never fail those who fear you. Help us, Lord, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. As we desire that men should do unto us, let us do first unto them. Help us to be a disciplined people for your glory and our good. Unite our hearts to fear your name and your name alone. Lord, we now ask your blessing upon our fellowship, our meal, our rest. And we cast all our cares on you, for you care for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. Amen.